0: Nehemiah chapter 12, we're looking at verses 1 through 7, uh, 47, and the title of this meth- message is The Heart of Worship. Just want to remind you, the first six chapters are about the rebuilding of the wall. So if you haven't been with us, Nehemiah was in a foreign land. God put a burden on his heart because he heard about his home country, and how there was no walls surrounding the city. And when you have no walls, there's no protection. Imagine if you had no doors, no walls to your house, you would be scared and you would stay, uh, you'd probably sleep with a weapon under your pillow or something to protect yourself. And so he was burdened by, by God with this burden and he, went to Jerusalem and rebuilt the walls with the permission of the king and got the people rallied up, and they built the walls in 52 days. A two-mile-long wall, this huge, monstrous thing they did. And then in chapter 7 through 13, we see the revival of the people. And that's where we've been, is God has been among his people, stirring them up, giving them desires. They were hungering after God's word. And revival always starts with God giving a desire. And the people had this desire for God's word. They fed that desire and fed on God's word day in and day out. They obeyed God's word by uh, holding this feast at the end of chapter eight. And then at the end of the month, they started confessing their sins and fasting, and they were broken over their sins, and they prayed out and cried out to the Lord. Something else that revival does, it produces a heart of worship within people. It produces a heart of worship within God's people. And tonight, that's what I want to talk about, the heart of worship. But I want to open up with this question. What makes worship worship? Is it the songs we sing? Is it the lights? Is it the cool sound effects? Is it having a full team or is it one person? What makes worship worship? Is worship worship when we have that Holy Spirit goosebump chills and that's how we know that it's worship? Or can it still be worship if feelings don't go along with it? feelings can be a part of worship but feelings is not based on true worship there's four points to this message heart of worship involves four things thanksgiving singing purity and rejoicing In verses 1 through 6, I'm not going to read that section because it's a list of names of the priests and the Levites from the time of Zerubbabel to Nehemiah. And the purpose of this was to show that the Levitical service was sustained through the difficult era in Israel's history. Now, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were actually part of the first group out of three that came back out of captivity into the promised land, and back to Jerusalem. That was a hundred years before Nehemiah, at the very beginning of the book of Ezra. A hundred years later, they still track all the priests and the Levites. But something I want to point out to you is in verse 24, it says, with the brothers across from them to praise and give thanks, uh, give thank." Uh, I totally, typed that out wrong. Let me check this out again. Their brothers across from them to praise and give thanks, groups alternating with the group according to the command of David, the man of God. And I want to point out this phrase, David, the man of God, because it's mentioned twice in this chapter in verse 24 and 36. And the reason why I want to point this out is because David changed the worship life of the whole entire nation for years to come. He changed the worship life of Israel. He implemented new things. Notice in verse 24, it says, according to the command of David, the man of God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16, it says, then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers, accompanied by instruments of music and stringed instruments, harps and cymbals. By raising the voice with resounding joy, David brought in new things to worship. Not only that, he wrote 73 psalms out of 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. That's 48% of the book. Just a little under half. He wrote that many songs to the Lord expressing his heart. And a lot of these Psalms, the Jews still sing and did sing back then. See, David had the heart of worship because he was a man after God's own heart. There was nobody in the Bible that has that title except for David. If you're taking notes, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, the Lord, said, uh, the Lord had sought for himself a man after his own heart. He was looking for a man. Who is seeking his heart earnestly. And I love it because in Acts 13, it says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Not just some of his will, all of his will. Can that be said of us? Are we men or women who are after God's heart? because that's what worship is about, seeking the heart of God, praising the Lord. See, before David became king, before David killed Goliath, and we all know that story, he was a young man out in the fields attending sheep, forgotten about by his father. And I bet you as he was out there being faithful in the small things, taking care of the responsibilities that his dad entrusted him, He was talking to the Lord. He was talking to God. He was worshiping the Lord out in the field. And it was from there that the Lord continued to cultivate his heart. He understood God's love because he understood what it means to be a shepherd. David also was a gifted musician playing the harp for King Saul and other instruments. David was a worshiper and a worship leader, even when he became king. He wanted the people to praise and worship God properly because he is worthy. And I think there's nobody better in Scripture who has a heart of worship than David. Because he is honest, he is real, he is vulnerable before the throne of God, and he understands how holy the Lord is. He also understands his failures, of how he is messed up and how God still loved him. And so, even many years later, hundreds of years later, they're still following David's example because of the influence he had and how he was a man after God's own heart. In verses 27 through 43, we see the dedication of the wall. And that's what this whole entire chapter is really about, is now that they've built the wall, the people are getting revived they dedicate this wall. And you might be wondering what the word dedication means. It comes from a Latin verb, which means to offer or to give up. When an object is dedicated, like let's say walls or a building here, we here dedicate each and every building. When we actually built the sanctuary, I was younger, and Pastor David allowed all the people to go in to the sanctuary because the carpet hadn't been laid, nothing. And we all wrote scripture on the platform. And we looked at Bible verses and we wrote down Bible verses and the whole entire platform is covered in verses. We dedicated that sanctuary to the Lord. And when you say something's dedicated to the Lord, it means that you're giving it to him for his control and his use for his purposes. So when parents have baby dedications, have you guys been in the sanctuary for a baby baby dedication? The idea is they're saying, God, we're giving you our child, Lord, that you would have control, that you would use our child. When we dedicate ourselves to the Lord, we're saying the same thing. And think about rededication. Some of us, sometimes we mess up. We drift away. And we give that opportunity for you to raise your hand and say, hey, if you would would like to rededicate your life and people raise their hand, a rededication, you're saying, God, I'm giving you control because I took that control away from you. I'm pushing and giving myself to you again and saying, Lord, I am yours fully. Use me as you see fit. That's the idea. And this section describes the Levites' roles and the dedication of the wall. Let's look at verses 27 through 31. Follow along with me. In verse 27, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with both thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nephilim, or however you pronounce it, and from all the house of Gilgal, and from the fields of Geba and Ziphrah. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall so i brought the leaders of judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs one went uh to the right hand on the wall towards the refuge gate i'm gonna stop there so we see in verse 27 at the dedication of the wall they sought out these levites in their places to bring them to jerusalem The Levites had many responsibilities in the life and the worship of Israel, but one of the most important jobs they had was leading the people in song and worship, praising the Lord. And so they brought them in to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and singing. And that word thanksgiving is actually used seven times in this chapter. There was thanksgiving psalms, there was thanksgiving, there was giving of thanks. And giving God thanks is an act of worship. And anytime we say, thank you, God, we are worshiping the Lord. The word thanksgiving actually expresses gratitude directed towards God. Have you ever wondered if you were in the will of God before? Or maybe you've wondered like, God, what is your will for my life? There are key verses in the Bible where it specifically tells us that this is the will of God. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. When you are thanking God, you are in the will of God. That is God's heart. That is what God wants. Because it brings our hearts sometimes out of self-centeredness and despair and places it on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and reminds us of the things he's done. It's quite interesting. I'm going to skip down to verse 31 because he says that he pointed two large thanksgiving choirs. Worship is rooted in thanking God. But can you imagine this for a moment? He takes the people and puts them into two different groups. And these are not just any ordinary choirs. These are choirs dedicated just to thanking and praising the Lord. And throughout this chapter, there is a specific design to the whole entire thing. Here's a map of Jerusalem when they built the wall so that you can see. There was two different leaders. Ezra led one group and Nehemiah led the other group. And they went around the wall two different ways one went up the side towards the temple and the other one went down below towards the temple each having probably a multitude of people singing and worshiping God can you imagine what that's like have have any of you guys been to the rose parade before one person that's it how many have seen the rose parade on tv all right, a couple more. Dang, you guys got to get out and live. One time after we had a, a youth event here at church, my friend Caleb and a bunch of us went actually to the Rose Parade like at probably 1 a.m. in the morning and we stayed up all night and we were getting like different drinks and having a good time. Uh, we, had, we discovered peace tea for the first time. And it was like before it was a popular thing. We were the first ones to discover it, like what? And it was so much fun, but we were so freezing cold. And we actually fell asleep during the parade because we were so tired. Uh, and then we got tacos afterwards, so it was great. But the parade is something special. You're seeing all these floats pass before you. You see these bands uh, like singing their songs. You see these girls with a flag twirling. It's quite a spectacle but I wonder what this was like, because this was something holy. This was something spiritual here, them going around in a group. I wonder if there were so many people at one point, every inch of the wall was covered with people praising the Lord. If I was one of those things, people in the choir surrounding the wall, and I started walking across a section that I built, I'm like, I'm like, Lord, hopefully the wall didn't collapse, because that's what I would be thinking if I was going to cross it. And they had cymbals, stringed instruments, harps, and trumpets. For just a fun fact, there's 22 different musical instruments mentioned in the Bible, and a lot of them have to do with worshiping God, and they were used in the worship of God, like we do today using guitars or drums or different instruments. This was a massive band that they coordinated and got organized and to dedicate this wall with just praising the Lord. It says in verse 28 through 29, it says, "...the sons of the singers gathered from the countryside around Jerusalem, for the singers had built themselves villages in, around Jerusalem." The word singing and singers is used seven times also in this chapter. Singing has always been a striking feature of the worship of God, of his people in the Old Testament and New Testament. There's constantly recording times of them singing and praising the Lord. I have a question. What other religions or what do you think of singing? When you think of singing... What other religions come to your mind? What do you think of? I grew up kind of in the Mormon church. So okay. they singing kind of is the first thing when it comes to religion. Their singing is one of their first things? That it comes to mind, yeah. Okay, how is their singing? Is it kind of like ours or is it way different? That's no, formal. Formal, okay. So they have kind of like these pre-arranged yeah. songs that they sing? No stuff, yeah. It was all in Spanish so I didn't understand the single <laughs> okay. But when you think of other religions, what other religions do you think of singing? I can't think of any, can you? I really don't know how many other religions actually use singing. And if they do use singing, it might be kind of lifeless, right? It might be just like methodical and you have the same lyrics that you sing over and over and over. Maybe it's only the pastor singing or the person playing the songs. And Jehovah's Witnesses, did you know, they're not allowed to celebrate any holidays? They can't celebrate Christmas. They don't celebrate birthdays. It is literally, they take the joy out of everything. And I love that God records multiple celebrations because he made us as people, because we love to celebrate. We like to have a good time. He's designed us that way. Christianity, what sets us apart is that what we do here is true. We worship the true and living God. But something else that sets us apart is that we, as Christians, are singers. Christians write hymns and songs, Christian musicians compose great music. Christianity itself is joyous. It is a response to the great act of what God has done on our behalf. I'm going to say that again. It is a response to the great acts of God that He's done on our behalf. That's what Christianity is. We respond, and that is what worship is. And we respond by singing to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. I know it's a little bit of a struggle being in junior high because you're at an age where you're trying to find yourself. You're trying to fit in with your peers. You don't want to stand out. And so maybe some of the times you come into junior high and you don't want to worship, or should I say sing, because you're maybe concerned about who's sitting next to you or how you're going to sound. So maybe you just mouth the words and you feel like you pretend to sing along. But something that my older brother said to me when I was entering into junior high that I've never forgotten He said, Josh, worship if no one else is worshiping. It doesn't matter who's sitting by you. He says, worship if no one else is worshiping. Now, my brother's walked away from the Lord, and I don't know if he's saved or not. God is this discerner of hearts. But I've taken that to heart. I don't care who's sitting by me. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to sing to him. Because I love to sing. Specifically, worship. Christians sing on all occasions. Did you guys know that? Christians sing on all occasions. There's not an occasion where Christians cannot sing because we have the joy. And we're commanded to. I love that. If you think about it, we can sing in the shower. We can sing on the way to work. You can can sing in your room. You can even sing at a funeral. I've been at funerals and moments where there was extreme heartache, but the worship was so intense. My second semester of Bible college, there was a young man, he was less than 25 years old, and he had a massive heart attack and died. And he, wasn't, had, he had no symptoms. He, had, he was fit. But I came onto campus, I literally drove onto campus, and I felt this heaviness, and I was like, what happened? I didn't see anybody yet. I got out of my car, and I could just feel this heaviness. And I walk into Sunday Night Chapel, and you can tell people were grieving. But I will never forget the one song they sang, And it went like this. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? From the grave he has risen victoriously. And when, they, when everyone sang that, I opened my eyes. And everyone had their hands raised. Praising, shouting, worshiping God. And every time I think of that moment, it reminds me of just praising the Lord, it was so sweet. I was at my friend's wedding um, that I was in and even before the whole entire ceremony started or as we were actually down up front, one person got up stage and started doing worship songs and they had like three worship songs. As Christians, we can see in all occasions, even in suffering, Paul and Silas, when they were in prison and they were just beaten They were singing songs to the Lord. We can sing at all times. Charles Swindoll said, he said, Don't stop singing. Sing in the afternoon. Sing on your way home from work or school. One of the most exuberant expressions of a joyful heart is a singing mouth. You wanna know how someone is joyful? See if they're singing, and they just can't help it because they love the Lord. These singers, their job was to lead the people in worship, which which means they probably had to be good singers, correct? Because if they weren't good singers, how how distracting would that be? I've been in services where somebody's not a good singer, and it's just like, man, I cannot concentrate on Jesus right now because someone's not on key. So these singers were probably good singers. But more importantly than being a good singer or sounding good, they had to be worshipers themselves. They had to have the right hearts. Just because someone is a gifted singer or a gifted musician does not mean they can lead worship. Some people come and talk to me like, Josh, I want to lead worship. And I'm like, oh, really? Okay, like... Show me what you got. And sometimes they can play. Sometimes they can sing. But their heart isn't in it. And you can tell when their heart is not genuine. Others, I know they have the natural gift and a natural tone. And I know their heart because they, aren't, they don't want to be in front of people. See, i rather have someone who sounds decent with the right heart who loves and is seeking after God, than someone who sounds amazing, who can play the guitar and do all these other instruments, who does not have a right heart, who is not seeking after God. I think we need to be reminded, worship is not entertainment. Worship is not a concert. Worship is not about amazing musicians or singers. Worship is not about those on stage. And worship is not about ourselves. So if we're coming into worship to get an experience, it's not about that. It's about praising God, whether you and I feel like it or not. There was a season in Bible college, I made up my mind. I was like, God, I'm going to praise you if I don't feel like it. And I'm going to sing to you even if I don't feel like it. When you go into worship with that mindset, your worship changes. Because it's no longer about feelings. And you're, I'm going to worship because of who you are. Even if I have a crappy day, even if things aren't going my way, I am going to worship you, Lord. See, worship is about praising, magnifying, glorifying, thanking God, skinning our attention on the Lord. Worship is about our amazing God. It's all about the Lord. Now, don't don't misunderstand me. Within worship, we should strive to give God our best and our excellence. But if we get caught up in the excellence of the people on stage, then that means they have failed in their objective. Because we went from looking to God to looking at their talents. And when we do that, that is wrong. Even if you guys are in the audience, worship should never be gathering attention. There was a guy in Bible college, I'll never forget it. Every time we were in chapel, he would go like this, and he would look over his like, left shoulder and then his right shoulder, and he goes, all right. And then he would like praise God. And I was like, boys, knock it off. Like, that's not cool. Like, why are you looking at if people are watching you? Now I'm watching you, and it bothers me. We should give God our excellence. But it's not about the excellence of the musician or the singer. It's about the heart of worship, and that is exalting the Lord. Because there are many people who can sing beautifully but they might not have the right heart and they have no place on stage notice in verse 30 then the priests and the Levites purified themselves purity is an important part of worship sometimes we forget that when we come into a church service that we are approaching a holy God Isaiah the prophet he encountered the Lord and he had this vision And he literally saw the God high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he saw these two angels, these cherubim or seraphim. And they had six wings. With two, they flew with two. They covered their face because they said, God is so holy, we can't look at him. And with two, they covered their feet because where they were standing was a holy ground. And as they sing and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Their worship shook the place, the temple. Sometimes we forget. And I'll be honest, as I was studying this passage, I was like, even in worship, I was like, Lord, I'm sorry because I come into worship sometimes with the wrong heart, with the wrong mindset. And I forget that you are holy, that you are pure, that you are righteous. And as a holy God, he desires us to be holy. And the priests and the Levites understood this. They did not take worship lightly or leading worship lightly. Worship leaders must purify themselves first before leading worship. This was... Possibly a ceremonial washing. They possibly washed their clothes, fasted, or even offered some sacrifices in an aspect of purification. But you know how you and I get purified? is by coming to God and saying, Lord, forgive me of my sins. By confessing, asking your forgiveness, and he washes us from the inside out. Even though this might have been an outward sign with the Levites, I bet you inwardly they were preparing their hearts and getting their hearts right because inward purity is more important than outward purity. I was reminded of this quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, no man should stand before an audience who has not first stood before God. In other words, he goes, you have no business to stand in front of people unless you've stood before God himself. And that thought to stand before God is a purifying thought. And I, this was said about teachers, but I think it applies to worship leaders and us as worshipers. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol nor swear by false God. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. If you want to get close to the Lord, pursue him and he will pursue you. He's already sought after you. It says, Cleanse you your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. We can be made pure and clean before God today, right now at this moment, by doing what the Bible says, what 1 John says, confessing our sins, and He can forgive us. But notice The Levites purified themselves, but then they purified the people and the wall and the gates. The worship leader is first to purify themselves, but the people must do the same thing. I want to challenge you. If you come into worship, try this next time during the first song, because I know we all sometimes have a hard time getting into worship at times because our mind is distracted on the fight that we had with our siblings or our parents when we were pulling onto campus because the enemy is at work, not wanting us to be here. Or we're thinking about a failure that we recently did and we're coming into worship. If you are distracted, stop singing for a moment, close your eyes and say, Lord God, forgive me my sins and be specific. Say, Lord, I don't want to approach you with half-heartedness. I don't want to approach you with just this flippant attitude. I want to approach you with reverence and holiness and give you the respect and the praise that you deserve. And then say, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and move on. The feeling of guilt might be still there or the shame. Ignore that. God's forgiven you. If you've confessed it, forget about it. Our heart, our problem is that we keep bringing it back up or the enemy brings it back up. God does not bring it back up. If you have asked for forgiveness, he has forgotten about it. And he's saying, what are you talking about, my son, my daughter? Move on. In verse 31, it says, I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall. I love this because leaders ought to be worship leaders. One time when I was in high school, I was maybe a sophomore or junior in high school, and the very first area I started serving in at this church was greeting at the door. I would say hi to people, I would open the door, sit them to their seats, and then chill out in the hallway until the next person came. But there was one time I was standing out there and almost all the high school leaders were in the hallway. There was about five or so, and it bothered me. And they were talking. And I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm like, why are you out here talking when you should be in there worshiping? Because there was no other leaders inside worshiping. And that bothered me because we should demonstrate to other people what true worship should be like. I'll never forget what my friend uh, wrote to me uh, my um at my birthday party, my, my 18th birthday party, I still have the letter. He said, Josh, I learned to worship by watching you worship. And I'll never forget that. I'll never lose that letter because that means a lot. Now, I don't worship to be seen by other people, but I was focusing on the Lord in that moment. Nehemiah is encouraging the leaders here to demonstrate what true worship should look like. And so we see on the wall that one goes up on the right side and is led by Ezra, in verses 32 through 36. The second group, led by Nehemiah, in verses 38 through 39. These thanksgiving choirs go in opposite directions, and they meet up at the house of God. And look at verse 32 or 42. It says, "And the singers sing loudly with Jezreel, the director. I love that. They sing loudly. And that, this reminded me of something Mike Manzano, who just led us in worship, that he said at junior high camp. He led the junior high worship when we went for serpents and doves. And he said, I love doing worship with you guys. And he goes, he said something that really stirred my heart. He goes, when we do worship on Wednesdays together, he goes, I hear you guys off to the side of me more than anybody else. And that blesses me because that means you guys are singing. You're worshiping the Lord. We should sing loud for the Lord, not to be heard by other people, but to give God our all, to sing loud and proud for the Lord. Now, we don't have to sing loud for God to hear us because God's not deaf, okay? He doesn't, he's constantly paying attention to us but to sing loud, giving him our all. I've done this and sometimes in worship where I've actually worshiped whispering the lyrics because God can hear me just as clear because it's about the hearts, not how we sound. But I would say, let's get loud for the Lord. Let's sing out loud for him because he's worthy. And then it leads to the climax of the story in verse 43. Follow along with me, verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. This leads us to the fourth point, rejoicing. We've already seen Thanksgiving. We've looked at singing. We've looked at Purity, this last one is rejoicing. This is used five times in this one verse, joy or rejoicing. They made great sacrifices. Can you picture this? They're all marching around the wall, singing praises. And then all of a sudden, as they gather to the temple, all of a sudden, the worship starts to build and get louder and louder and louder and louder. You have the priests sacrificing animals. People singing out praises to the Lord. And I love this phrase. It says, for God made them rejoice with great joy. God was involved in the worship, increasing their joy in the process of them being obedient. God is in the middle of our praises. See, this joy is spiritual because it was God-given gladness. And that's what joy is, remember. Joy is God-given gladness. It's different from happiness. And God made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and the children also rejoiced. Everyone was involved. The whole entire family worshiping together, praising God. This must have been a beautiful and moving sight. But notice the last part. So that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. They were so loud as one one nation The other nations heard them from a distance. And it wasn't something annoying. See, when I grew up in Ontario before we moved to Chino, we kind of lived in the ghetto and we had criminals running through our backyard at times. There was one pink house on our neighborhood every Friday night, they would take their speakers and point them to the whole entire neighborhood because they said, our music's so good, we want you to enjoy it until 2 a.m. in the morning. And we're like, thank you. Every Friday night, mariachi music, blaring. It was annoying to say the least. (laughs) This wasn't an annoying noise. When all the other nations heard, all the other people surrounding them, this eruption of praise and joy, they said, what is going on there? What's taking place in Jerusalem? This is how our services ought to be. We shouldn't be concerned about how we sound. If you don't know the lyrics, we try to put the lyrics up so that you can sing along in the process. If you know the lyrics, sing it out with your heart. Give God your all. Psalm 100 verses 1 through 5 says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord. I want to stop there. It doesn't say sing in tune. Because some of us, let's be honest, we can't sing in tune, right? There's been times where I can't sing in tune. I have a friend, love her to death, but if you were sitting next to her, she could not hold a note for the life of her. But she loved Jesus, and she worshiped Jesus despite that. It says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing, knowing that the Lord, he is God, and he is the one who... Who Has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to the be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. I love that. Anytime we come onto this campus, we should enter into his presence with praise. If you are going to read your Bible by yourself at your house, enter into his presence with praise and thanksgiving. Make a joyful shout unto the Lord. Now, like I said earlier, we don't sing to be heard by people. But often our heart is demonstrated through our actions. And I pray that people would see that our hearts are full of joy for the Lord seeking after God. God wants to hear your hearts. He wants to hear your voice more than anything. And he takes pleasure in your worship. And then when you sing to him. In verses 44 through 47, we see the temple responsibilities delegated and implemented. But I want to end on this verse. John 4, 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God was looking for a man after his own heart, but he was also looking after people who would worship him. How do you know if you have a heart after God? Do you want to worship him? Do you want to praise him? Do you want to magnify him? Do you want to glorify him? Do you want to give him the attention that is due to his name? That is somebody who has a heart after God, who is caught up in the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the works of God and what He has done for us. Be that type of believer who is seeking passionately after the Lord. And when you do that, God is looking for that person and then He's going to say, there's my son, there's my daughter. I'm going to use this one to change the environment of where they are at. I'm going to use this one to further the gospel. I'm going to use this one in a special way. If you want to be used by God, it starts with having a heart after God and worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth.